Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. 85 years ago today, the Hartford Current reported on the hunt for a mysterious creature, a quote, mountain lion or something, that was lovingly named Glowacus. There's been no confirmation of Glowacus's existence since then, in its supposed haunt in Glastonbury or anywhere else in the state. But the tale lives on. In fact, Patrick Scalisi, author of the new book, Connecticut Cryptids, says the Glastonbury Glowacus is part of the holy trinity of Connecticut's most famous cryptids, a trio that also includes the Black Dog of the Hanging Hills in Meriden and the Winstead Wildman. Have you seen a cryptid where you live? Join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And joining us now to discuss all things Connecticut cryptids is Patrick Scalisi himself, as well as Valerie Ruby Oman, who is the author and illustrator of the new book, Connecticut Cryptids, A Field Guide to the Weird and Wonderful Creatures of the Nutmeg State. Thank you so much, Patrick and Valerie, for being with us today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. So we'll love to start this conversation by giving us an idea of what exactly are cryptids and why is it so important to distinguish them from other sort of spooky, scary creatures like monsters or ghosts? Yeah, when we were writing the book, we knew we wanted to focus pretty specifically on creatures. Um, Connecticut has such a rich, uh, long history of ghost stories. So for the most part, those have been covered very well and we knew we wanted to focus on creatures instead and we turned our focus specifically to cryptids and a cryptid is a creature that people believe exists but has never been proven to exist and that falls into a couple different categories it could be uh, mythical creatures like uh, Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster or even dragons, but it could also be creatures that haven't been observed by modern scientists yet. And we know every year that biologists find dozens of new animal and plant and insect species. So a cryptid could also be something that hasn't been observed by science yet. And then lastly, cryptids can also be creatures who appear in places that maybe they're not supposed to be. And here in Connecticut, we have uh, a little bit of that with mountain lions, which I know has been covered before on the show. Um, you know, the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection says that there are no breeding mountain lions populations in the state, but every year... Uh, dozens of people report that they see them. So cryptids can also be creatures that appear where they're maybe not supposed to be. 
And I, I think that in of itself would fascinate anyone anyway, right? When something appears and you didn't expect them to be there. And I don't know if this was unexpected for you, but were you expecting to write this book? You know, when when did that moment, that inspiration, when was that planted in your head? And, and how did that sort of sprout? You know, how did you set up uh, set out researching. I imagine it's a pretty a pretty wide range based on your field book. Yeah, definitely. I started in uh, late 2020, and I'd always really had an interest in storytelling. I love storytelling, and I love local history, and I love trivia, and I had an awareness of some of the bigger stories from Connecticut, like the Black Dog and Meriden. And it got me thinking, what other cryptid stories did we have in Connecticut? And maybe I could do a project around that. So I started doing the research. Uh, I began contacting historical societies throughout the state, asking them if they had any stories to share related to their communities. And as I did the research, it became clear that there was potentially enough information to fill a book and at that point that is when i asked val to come aboard and see if she was interested in illustrating the stories and of course i was um i have uh such an interest in topics like this i'm i'm a big cryptid fan myself you know like the big boys like mothman bigfoot Flatwoods Monster, Jersey Devil. So when Pat told me there were, you know, so many cryptids in our home state, I was like, yeah, I I need to work on this project. So it was just kind of kismet that we came together on this project. Well, we love a little kismet here on the show. And actually, funnily enough, I spontaneously decided to visit the crypto, the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine, two winters ago. And that actually sort of sparked this conversation. I just had no idea that there were so many cryptids out there. And I, I grew up in the West Coast, so Bigfoot was a huge part of storytelling out there. Never have I thought I was going to see those stories here on the East Coast. And just FYI, I have a, a Dover Demon t-shirt on today just in honor of this conversation. I just thought that was an important fact to put out there on air today. So um, with that being said, uh, I want to go back to, you know, Pat, your your research experience too, because you actually contacted every historical society in the state or nearly every historical society in the state. Can you talk to us about what was that process like? Because we know most historical societies are volunteers. I, can, I can't imagine um, you going up to them asking about these stories, you know, were they receptive to your request? Yeah, as you said, most of these organizations are run by volunteers who are very generous with their time and experience and knowledge. And so many of them were not only receptive, but also very excited when I got in touch with them. Um, Some of them, of course, were, you know, responded with things like, oh, well, we don't have any stories related to our community, but good luck with your project. But there were others who were were so, so excited to share the tales that were related to their community. And and I can give you uh, a small example of that. As I was doing the research, I, of course, got in touch with the Greenwich Historical Society, and they responded 
we think we have something that's right up your alley. And they sent me this story about this creature called the Grinch that was specific to their community that was created for a specific purpose in the 1970s. And then they were so enthusiastic. They sent me scans of, of materials and we corresponded back and forth by email. And for me doing the research, it was exciting because I certainly had never heard this story before, but I don't know that many people outside of Greenwich or even many people in Greenwich outside of the time period that it was originally created knew this story. So to be able to share that with a wider audience was very gratifying. Well, and speaking of the Grinch, not to be mistaken by the Grinch, which is a very important factoid to put out there too. Can you tell us a little bit about the Grinch? You know, what's what's yeah. the story of the Grinch? So the Grinch is a longtime resident of the Greenwich area and he was created in the 1970s to help give some personality and add a, a kind of narrative element to informing residents about how their town community worked and um, a, the yearly update on what was happening in Greenwich. So instead of presenting a kind of dry annual report, a very clever writer one year came up with the idea of let's create this 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 creature called the Grinch that is going to go on this journey and learn all about how the town and community of Greenwich operates and we are going to follow them along on their journey and um of course they created this creature and at the time living in Greenwich was a cartoonist by the name of Mort Walker. And Mort Walker is famous for having created the Beetle Bailey comic strip. And he was living in Greenwich. So they asked him if he would illustrate it. And so he came up with drawings of what the Grinch would look like. And he kind of looks, kind of has a, a giraffe neck. Val, how would you describe the Grinch. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like a a giraffe dog, I would say. It does have a very long neck and it has the spots, but um it 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 has like kind of a dog nose. At least that's how I interpreted it in my illustration. Um I kind of took the the very cartoony elements and tried to make it a little bit more realistic, um just for the sake of it being in a field guide. So I would say it's like a giraffe dog with antenna. So that's, that's the best description I, I can come up with. Well, I love I love that description so much because we are such fans of that illustration. And honestly, oh, if I came you. across if I came across that Grinch on a hike, I know it's probably in my best interest to not go up and give it a hug, but I probably will want to. So. He just looks he looks so sweet and sleepy. How could how could he hurt you? You know, right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, still recommend, you know, leave leave the cryptids alone because you know, <laughs> For sure. don't get into their personal space. And so, no, we, we think he's the cutest ever. And, and Val, we, we definitely want to ask you, you know, we were so impressed by all of your all of your illustrations. They're all so good. And you're a cryptid fan yourself. So can you talk about what were some of the challenges bringing them to life sort of from your eyes? And what's your this is the worst question, but what's your favorite cryptid to illustrate? 
Um, that's not the worst question. <laughs> but um, to to start off, um, I think the challenges for this particular project were, um, I, I I think just the, I I like the stories that had less of a basis in reality. Um, so for example, uh, any like the Grinch, um, the old Saybrook blockheads, which, you know, they literally are blockheads, uh, very weird, fantastical. I had a lot of fun illustrating those because I could kind of just let my imagination fill in the blanks. Um, there was really no wrong answer for those illustrations. The ones that I found really challenging were the ones that were based off of creatures that we know exist, like the, uh, the white wolf of the Peacedale Cemetery in Bristol. That one was very challenging for me because I I had to make it look like a wolf. People know what a wolf looks like. They expect it to look a certain way. So it was it was pretty challenging to to illustrate it and make it look interesting and different from just a regular wolf because it's a cryptid. It's it's special. So I definitely have a very complicated relationship with wolves after this project because they definitely gave me a run for my money. Um, but that was probably the most challenging part. Um, I think my favorite cryptid to illustrate, um, I I prefer the ones that are kind of a little bit more scary, like mm -hmm. horror themed. I'm I'm very into horror as a genre, so... So um, the the Goatman of the Ansonia Opera House was a really, really gratifying illustration to do, um, as well as the Jewett City Vampire. I really, really like how that one came out. So the, the more dark macabre ones were, they kind of spoke to my soul. Well, I love that so much. And I guess wolves tend to be very popular in, in fantastical genres, too. So I can't imagine the difficulty you have in, in sort of creating them in, in your own light. And we'll definitely be getting into more of the spectrum of reality to fantastical after a quick break. But Val, you mentioning your amazing experience illustrating and your creativity and, and delving into your imagination. I also hear that you and Pat might be planning on getting some cryptid tattoos. Can you guys share a little bit about that? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we, we are, actually. Um, we've been working on this project for almost three years, so we we thought that we should commemorate it by getting permanent drawings on our skin, because why not? <laughs> Makes sense, totally. Yeah, so we wanted to get the illustrations for the Naga um, as tattoos, because we both live in Nagatuck, so we thought it would be cute to have, you know, little matching Nagas as, like, friendship tattoos, and just to commemorate the, the, the commencement of such a massive project. And there's two of them in the illustration, so that works out perfectly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I was just going to say the perfect friendship bracelet slash necklace. Uh, you hear it. You're hearing it here on Where We Live for the first time. Love it. Uh, you're listening to Valerie Ruby Oman and Patrick Scalisi. They're illustrators and authors of Connecticut Cryptids, a field guide to the weird and wonderful creatures of the nutmeg steak. And after the break, uh, folklore expert Stephen Jencarella joins us for this conversation. And guess what? You can too. If you've ever laid eyes on a Connecticut cryptid, let us know. 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. 
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're discussing Connecticut cryptids from sea serpents to Buddy the Beefalo. And joining us now to discuss is Stephen Obris Jankarilla, who's the professor of folklore studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, who lives in Lyme, Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining us today, Steve. It is an absolute pleasure. Where we live is a legend, and so I'm honored to be here. Oh, are we going to become a cryptid <laughs> at some point? <laughs> and still with us is also Patrick Scalisi and Valerie Ruby, Ruby Omen, who are authors and illustrators of Connecticut Cryptids, a field guide to the weird and wonderful creatures of the nutmeg state. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Steve, you've been listening to the conversation. We started the conversation by defining terms, you know, what's a cryptid and distinguishing uh, the differences between cryptids and monsters, for example. So with that in mind, are there things that you would like to add, especially when it comes to uh, storytelling and the way cryptids may or may not fill in for folklore? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for having me. Uh, The first thing I'd love to say in in response to that is that is to praise this fantastic book. And the reason I'd like to praise it uh, uh, is that it, it really, it does, uh, Val, despite Val saying that uh, the horror genre is her favorite, one of the things I love most about this book is it adds a whole dimension of the whimsical. It brings aspects of storytelling, particularly storytelling about cryptids, that doesn't always have to bring it down to the haunting or to the fear producing. And while it's true in folklore studies, that's we often examine how cryptids or any kind of monster can be a projection, can be an echoing of fears, anxieties, both personal and kind of in the in the milieu kind of cultural anxieties. There's also a whole range of, because there's a whole range of storytelling potentials, a whole range of emotions. And what's so delightful about this book and so delightful about the work that Pat and Val did is that they really bring that to light, that whole range of storytelling, which is the, 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 the beauty of our, our attempts as humans to make sense of a world that often doesn't make sense, which of course cryptids speak to, and then just really reinvigorate it through fantastic storytelling and fantastic, uh, the, I mean, the images are just so striking. So I tell you, 35 years from now, I, mean, I hope I'm here for it, but uh, 35 years from now, there'll be a professor at Folklore, and I'm telling you, they're going to say that it was this book that got them started. It just, it just re-enchants the world, something that we need, and that idea of a re-enchanted world, uh, cryptids speak to that. They, they uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a creature that uh, poses something is out there that we don't quite have access to, as a creature 
that invites speculation, that invites the best and the worst of human speculation, it really does speak to our desire as human beings to to tell stories, to share stories, to uh, to bring a sense of meaningfulness to others uh, through uh, the the imaginary. And I I love the word reenchanting because I think a lot of the stories, as uh, both Val and Pat mentioned earlier, they're based on real creatures or real stories. And we know your book, Spooky Tales, Tall Trails, Connecticut, was one of the resources that Pat leaned on as one that really sort of cut through the noise. So why is that such an important thing to do to cut through the noise? You know, how difficult was that for you? Yeah, thanks for that. It's, you know... (sighs) Cryptids are big business and increasingly becoming more so. I mean, again, it's a, I, I stand with, with Val and Pat in, in uh, appreciating the weirdness in Connecticut and hope Connecticut stays forever weird. But one of the things that we've seen, the kind of the rise of talking about cryptids, is really something that's only a couple of decades old. Um, and it is, let's face it, it is tied with larger media uh, trends. It is tied with commercialization. There's big business in cryptids and will increasingly be so. So as a count of that, there's an awful lot of folks, some of them well-meaning, I'll assume all well-meaning, but who will frequently just pass along information, maybe invent information in order to get, you know, in front of the camera, in order to get in front of the, of some type of uh, attention that can be problematic because of the way that it can flatten out stories, the way that it can miss local variants, the way it can miss the local flavors, the way that it can speak to histories that are problematic. And so there's an awful lot of noise out there, um, but it's understandable from as a folklorist. I understand that people want to participate. It's the reason people legend trip. It's the people tell stories. Folks want to get involved. Problem with that is it begins then to start to escalate very quickly into, uh, again, I know it sounds strange to look for consistency in stories about fantastical creatures, but it can really explode into a lot of misinformation, even kind of anti-science perspectives. And that's something also that I really love about the work that Pat and Val have done, is that um, they have taken on an awareness of the power of story. They follow the stories through, but do so never really insulting the scientific perspectives, uh, the scientific practice, and also recognizing that sometimes we we know we might be fibbing a little, and that's the beauty of, of, of telling stories. We know that sometimes the fantastical is just the fantastical. You don't need a body. You can just tell a tale because it's a great tale. Well, and we're going to get into all of that, too, throughout this conversation, you know, talking about tales that may be problematic and, and also the sort of the roots of the, those stories and also why we as human beings use these stories to sort of make meaning out of the out of the the X, you know, for example. So, Pat, I want to bring you back to the conversation, especially with what Steve just shared. We'd love for you to talk to us about your decision to treat this as a field guide. You know, why was that the way you chose to frame this so-called pseudoscience, Pat? Yeah, and I I also want to say that um, Stephen's book was such a huge resource for me when I was doing my research. I uh, I learned so much from it. So so thank you for that as well. But I felt like the field guide aspect of it would let folks go out to the places where these stories were from or had taken place, and hopefully learn a little bit more about those places like if you're from part of the state um that this story is from maybe you had never heard it before or maybe you had heard it but you didn't know 
specifically where it had come from. So I really hope that folks read it and use it as that kind of field guide to maybe learn something new about uh, a community that they live in or a community that they visited or maybe another part of the state that perhaps they're even less familiar with. Well, and I, I love that idea, too, because I think that that's inspiring me to want to use it as a field guide and, and go hiking in these areas that I don't know if I, it would ever come on my radar. And, and Pat, your descriptions of these cryptic critters are as journalistic as they are extremely playful at times. And, and we'll definitely get into some more examples after a quick break. But I want to speak on the tone of of the field guide. So with that perspective in mind, no, what was your goal as far as keeping hope alive, but also being realistic about the range of reliability here when we were talking about cryptids? I think I've always said that I'm kind of a skeptic when it comes to cryptids. Do they really exist? Are they out there? It's something that I would probably need to see to believe. But there's also things in the book that don't have uh, such a clear explanation that we're not sure where they came from or what happened in a specific circumstance. I read uh, a great quote in another book on this topic that I'm, I'm going to paraphrase here that it said essentially, it doesn't matter if the creature exists it matters that the story exists. And I just absolutely loved that so much because, like I said earlier, I love the storytelling aspect of it. And as long as we're repeating the stories, we're keeping it alive in some way. Well, I see there's a lot of nodding here in the studio, agreeing with your sentiment here, even though you can't see it, Pat, and, and for our <laughs> listeners. But do on that note, I would love to to sort of get your get your thoughts on Buddy the Beefalo and why is Buddy the Beefalo a good example of something that's on the more reliable end of the spectrum? And hilariously, journalistically speaking here, facts is I covered Buddy the Beefalo at a previous job. So this is a little personal for me, Pat. Yeah, um, Buddy is such a great story. And obviously, when we were doing the book, we knew we wanted to include Buddy because even though it was a real creature that was seen by dozens, if not more people, he became this folk legend almost overnight. People, shop owners in town were putting up signs in support of Beefalo or in support of Buddy the Beefalo. Um, when the news story broke, as I'm sure you remember, there was an almost immediate push that he be sent to an animal sanctuary somewhere and fundraising for that met its goal in something like 24 or 48 hours. There was just something about it that that captured people's imagination. And one article even described him as a modern day Sasquatch lurking in the woods and even today, people still bring him up online and social media every once in a while. How's Buddy doing? Is Buddy ever going to come back from Florida? Yeah. <laughs> Things like that. I think he's kind of become a folk hero in a way. And I, I think that just seeing how people came together over this story kind of 
I think that's the beauty of of stories like these and the the beauty of cryptids and storytelling is it's something that if done well and done properly can be like a really positive and and beautiful experience for for everybody involved. Well, and I, I think the the ultimate beauty of the buddy story is he captured our imagination by trying to not be captured. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, and Steve, you know, Pat and Val both talk about sort of the wide range of reliability, right, when it comes to these stories without really raining on, on the reader's parade. And, and we'll talk more about sort of the more problematic stories that has its own chapter in the book after a break. But I want to talk about, too, you know, why is this broader question about tone and context such a delicate one to consider when we're talking about these kinds of storytelling? It really, again, speaks to, we have a a history of discovery that, of course, is tied up, not to be too professorial, but it is often tied up to ideas of uh, Connecticut itself, that is colonization, that is how people understand other people coming in. When we see some of the cryptids that appear briefly and then kind of disappear. They often can be mapped out to immigrant populations bringing their lore from other places and trying to give them new life in a new place. And so the drama of of all folklore, of all folk narratives, is the drama of different cultures interacting through time, sharing, disputing, seeing things rise, seeing things die out. Uh, and that is perfectly dramatized in this idea of the cryptid of that, which is in some ways cannot be seen, and yet we always are trying to see from there. And can you talk about, too, where does folklore fit into this conversation? Yeah, folklore, the beauty, so so let's take Buddy again as an example, right? I mean, we he, Buddy is still alive. There are still people who, including here in the studio, who have some familiarity with him. So, you know, I would love to be 50, 75 years from now, if the buddy tale continues, it will be radically different than it is right now. I mean, de- depending on how social media can affect what people know. But but the, 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 the beauty of the story here is something that really happens. There is a pretty firm understanding of him. I think absolutely, Pat and Val, you're right, that he, he becomes a folk hero in, in every sense. That is, a community invests in telling his tale. A community sees their values in it. There's reasons to tell it. It's also entertaining, as can possibly be. There's just so much going on there. And so the folklore aspect is the passing on, right? What folklorists do is we study traditions. We study oral traditions, customary traditions. We study how things that are important to one group or to even to one person can be passed on to others over time. And that's the real question, right? Now, again, some stories die out. Some will last forever. Some hit big and become far beyond their range. The beauty, as I said, of Buddy is maybe 75 years from now, people will still be telling that tale. They won't remember exactly what happened, but they'll and they'll connect their own values to it. If we have a complete change in the human diet in 75 years due to climate changes, the story of Buddy, the beefalo, may be radically different than how we understand it now. We can't control that. I mean, we hand it, pass that on to future storytellers and let them run with it from there. That's the beauty of folklore is it's we're caretakers of a tradition, be it a legend, be it some other type of story, but we pass them on to others who then get to add play with, and whatever they choose to do. Well, and with what you just mentioned, too, especially earlier, we talked about how these stories kind of come about by us trying to make meaning out of things that we don't understand, or as you mentioned, 
uh, just now too, uh, culturally, a lot of times there are stories from immigrant communities or even indigenous people who lived here, uh, you know, in these lands, and it's their stories as well. Can you talk about those connections? You know, is there a, a, an area where they these stories have drawn inspiration from those original tales? You call them original tales, or how does that sort of relationship work with those? stories from that time to what we know them as stories today. Yeah, it's a complicated one. It means we have some great examples, the Black Fox of Salmon River, for example, which again, Val, I just absolutely, the, 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 the sinister, delicious look in that Black Fox's eye in your <laughs> illustration. I just love it. That, that's my tattoo, I think. So the, uh, <laughs> it's gorgeous. But the Black Fox of Salmon River is, 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 is these days, I mean, I hope thanks to this book will be reintroduced because it's one of the major con- contributions of Connecticut, to, even to global folklore. It does seem when you unpack its history to have some origins in indigenous lore about uh, something that's often called a black fox, but that might be another creature that is something that really exists in natural history that European colonists weren't entirely aware of, but that also had a uh, another level of indigenous understanding and in some cases even kind of a, a, a sacred aspect to it. However, that black fox legend as it emerges also brings European notions of witchcraft and kind of makes a hybrid of them. It's a very popular tale in the area. It it, it becomes a poem in Brainerd, John Brainerd, the Connecticut poet in the early 1800s. It it continues to thrive, and it really demonstrates an intersection of indigenous lore with European lore as they become hybrids. In, In other cases, however, there's demonization of indigenous lore. There is mis true misunderstanding. And sometimes it's deliberate, and sometimes it's deliberate in order to justify the removal or some other kind of, not to be a downer here, and, and what's a, just a great topic, but often the the demonization of the uh, uh, creatures of indigenous people was used as justification for taking their lands or ju- used for justification of even removing them. And, and Pat, especially writing on what Steve just just mentioned, you know, there are countless stories around Connecticut that are linked or claim to be linked to native names. We have a question. We have a question from John from West Hartford who called to ask us if you had gone to Native American lore for evidence for some of these creatures. So, with that question in mind, Pat, you know, what sort of considerations did you make to ensure that there is accuracy here? As you said earlier. Stephen's book did such a great job of cutting through a lot of that noise, and I learned so much from it. And one of my main takeaways was so many of the stories that I were I was finding that I had been told uh, came from a Native American legend or an indigenous story were actually not from those. Uh, they were romanticized by white writers later on to add you know, a a certain set of mysticism or other characteristics to the story. And they didn't actually have roots in the indigenous traditions that are present in the state. So when push came to shove, there were a few stories in the book that we knew that I knew did come from those traditions. And where possible, I really wanted to get back to the best source that I could to tell that story. 
Um, so we have uh, a story from the Mohegan people in the book about uh, the little folk who are called the Makiawisug. And in that tale, I tried exclusively to go back to uh, Mohegan sources to tell that story, while also acknowledging that I am not an indigenous person, I am not an indigenous writer. So I want to try to do right by this story and um, present it in a way that is respectful and as accurate as I can make it. Steve, before we go to a quick break, I want to respond to that. I, I think, again, it is the, the difficulty to your question earlier. What So much of the noise just does not do this. And so, again, I'm grateful to be able to to praise, you know, my my. I think I can say my friend Pat and Val. I hope we're friends now. <laughs> yeah, that absolutely. The, um, yeah. You know, in the attentiveness to that, and it not only it it demonstrates what we professional folk course have to be concerned about in terms of our actual research, but where the rubber hits the road is where that becomes better known, becomes a part of the popular culture, and I deeply appreciate the attentiveness to which they've given, and I think it's a model for all of us to not, doesn't mean that these stories should not be shared or told, it just means that we have responsibility to storytelling, and I'm grateful for them for doing it in the way that they did. You're listening to Stephen Jencarella, who's a folklore professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, as well as Patrick Scalisi and Valerie Rubin Omen, who are the author and illustrator of Connected, Connecticut Cryptids. Share your tall tale. Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Bigfoot and Nessie and Glowacus. Oh my. This hour, we're learning all about cryptids or creatures we're not sure exist here in Connecticut and beyond. Back with us is Patrick Scalisi and Valerie Ruby Omen, who are authors and illustrators of Connecticut Cryptids, a field guide to the weird and wonderful creatures of the nutmeg state. We also have Stephen Obrisk Jencarella, who's a professor of folklore studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. So, Steve, I want to jump to you real quick here. You know, sea serpents are a centerpiece of Pat's book. And so can you talk about why do you view these as sort of the monarch of, <laughs> of New England cryptids? Yes, uh, the sea serpent. <laughs> The beauty of the sea serpent, it really is uh, not just a Connecticut, it really is, uh, it's, it's often called the Great New England Sea Serpent. And there are stories of this kind of monstrous serpent that, again, are pre-colonial indigenous. We know that they were telling tales. Of course, European colonists brought their versions of this. So the beauty of this is that you, you can get to the very local, right? So a very local sighting of a sea serpent in, you know, a, in a river here in Connecticut can echo out to an international folklore that can have been passed on for, for centuries. We also see in the sea serpent the uh, kind of cultural movements, right? So some of the earliest stories have to do often with people who are going off fishing, who are going off whaling, who may never see their loved one again. And that collective fear is it of the ocean, of death in, 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 in the depth is attached to that. 
Over time, we begin to see sea serpent lore in Connecticut that correlates with the discovery of dinosaurs, with debates at Yale as to whether, well, wait a minute, if these things existed, we know from fossil records, could they still be out there now? And so it gets wrapped into our understandings of natural history and the progression of science. And then the big, really the big thrill for me was the finding out of their attachment to Tourism and to rising tourism industries. And we, we often don't think of tourism in Connecticut begins in the 1800s. And so you could find a patent. Val, I'm sure you know this, right? You could find hundreds and hundreds of advertisements in newspapers throughout Connecticut saying, we, we have the best view of the sea serpent, right? the first sightings of the sea serpent. And nobody's seeing anything, but everybody loves it and participates in it. The, 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 I, Val, the, the Connecticut River sea serpent version again i now now i have a new tattoo cuz that is just so gorgeous <laughs> i'm going to have to have everything tattooed on, on uh, <laughs> but but the beauty of that story is it appears in 1886 right and so there are, there are stories of it being spotted in the connecticut river what i uh, love is that just a week earlier it had been spotted in the hudson and there was no way particular i mean there's there's tourist dollars on this there was no way connecticut was going to let new york take they can have baby later, but we're keeping our sea serpent now. And so it really is a kind of open vessel for all of the anxieties and ideas of the time. It speaks beautifully to what cryptids represent, to the intersection of knowing and not knowing. Uh, and for that reason, and for its kind of just longevity, it really is in many ways the monarch of, of New England folklore's monsters. Well, and I, I think it's so funny that you you mentioned that that sort of tourism, the idea of tourism and ads for it started in the 1800s because in, in present day, I was just in Port, uh, Portland, Oregon recently, and let's talk about the Bigfoot <laughs> capital of the United States with all of the Bigfoot merch that you can think of with literal Bigfoot crossings at intersections. So I can certainly appreciate that <laughs> as a modern person today. And and Pat, you know, Steve mentioned sea serpents. Val mentions mentioned dragons earlier. I also also want to talk about the Fairhaven dragon. But these are all very different cryptids, right, Pat? Correct. This was such a fun story to discover. Um, the 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 Fairhaven sea dragons when the first European sailors arrived in what is now New Haven and Fairhaven, they uh, reportedly saw these creatures that they hadn't seen before that they couldn't explain. And we know today that they are harbor seals, but the sailors at the time assumed that they were sea dragons. That was the, that was the most plausible explanation. So um, the, sea dragons that they saw uh, short of just becoming this great story that we're talking about now ended up having this absolutely profound impact on the area of fair haven uh, fair haven was originally called the village of dragon or the port of dragon and things were named dragon in and near that part of town there was the, the the dragon bridge and the dragon river and businesses were named that and it wasn't until later that the name was changed uh to fairhaven and even for a little while after the change in this kind of tra transitional period it was called uh fair dragon so 
it, it ended up having this absolutely huge impact on the history of the area just because folks saw something that they couldn't explain or hadn't encountered before. And Pat, we mentioned earlier that you have a section towards the end of the book that's dedicated to problematic cryptids. And one very common question that you wrote you would get was about your decision to omit the so-called melon heads from this discussion. Can you talk about that decision? Definitely. It is a question that we get asked a lot. And I feel like in conversations about Connecticut cryptids, that's a story that comes up very often. As we did research into it and looked at the story, we realized that it's not really a nice story. It, it has to do with, you know, most, or, most variations on the story have to do with uh, people with intellectual disabilities who were possibly living in a group home or in an institutional setting who then escaped into the woods and became wild. And it, like I said, it's it's just not a very nice story to say nothing of the fact that, you know, they don't really fit the parameters of the book in that they're humans and not creatures. And I think when a lot of people like to tell the story, but when you point out to them, you know, it's not really a nice story to repeat. They kind of pause for a second and say, oh, yeah, you're right. It, it's not really a nice story. What, what would you add to that, Val? Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, I think these stories come from a place of fear. I think it's the fear of the unknown, something that we don't understand. And I think that's why, you know, people with disabilities or, you know, people of lower income, different ways of living sometimes get demonized like this. And um, I, I think that it kind of just becomes this such a commonplace thing in our interactions and our storytelling that I think it's shocking to people to to really look at it and go, oh my goodness, yeah, that actually really isn't a nice story. That's that's not that's not really a cryptid. Um, I think it's it it's definitely shocking for some people, but it just kind of speaks to how ingrained that is into our society and our interactions. So Pat and I were definitely really conscious about not perpetuating that in this book. So we really, really tried to be sensitive to that. And we had a lot of conversations about things that we wanted to include, things that we didn't want to include. As topics came up, we would look at them and say, you know, is this a story that we want to repeat? Is this, where is this coming from? What do the sources look like? Do we want this ultimately to be in the book? Yeah, there were a couple ones that were very violent, especially towards like animals and things like that, um, that we decided to omit from the book as well, because they just were not pleasant stories that we felt like continuing. We've got about a minute and a half here, but I got three really quick questions for all three of you. So we're going to power through this real quick, like a cryptid. Um, Pat, what would you say are the true Connecticut cryptids? I would say the black dog of the hanging hills. Mm, the classic. The classic. <laughs> and Val, we know you made Bigfoot the ultimate Connecticut cryptid through your illustration, but what cryptid would you say deserves to be on the state crest? I honestly, I think I would have to go with the black dog as well. Mm. I think that one's the most 
well-known and, and legendary. All right. Double black dog over here. It sounds like a plan to me, actually. And Steve, what do you think? So why do you think so many of us are drawn to these creatures? You know, is, is this sort of like an X-Files, I want to believe uh-huh. situation? Very much so. Uh, again, even, you know, it is a way to invest oneself into it. It's akin to what we call legend tripping, where people go to the sites to become a part of it. And so some of this is, is again, is, is, is the desire to be the caretaker, to be the person who is has the tradition for a while. And that investment is, again, is, it can be problematic. I'm grateful for the ethics that Pat and Val brought to the matter, although I have to speak up for the Galakas as our state. <laughs> oh. our, our state cryptid. Well, that's, that's a good argument to make, too. <laughs> um, but, but that invest, the desire to invest and to be a part of it is, again, what is most deliciously human in storytelling. And, uh, and particularly when there are unknowns, it means that, uh, that no one can absolutely claim certainty, which, which, which fuels the ability to add your, your own perspective. Well, obviously, we're going to have to get some brackets in to figure out <laughs> which cryptid deserves to be on our state crest as a follow-up soon. Uh, you've been listening to Stephen Gencarella, who's a folklore professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, as well as Patrick Scalisi and Valerie Ruby Omen, who's the author and illustrator of Connecticut Cryptids. Thank you all three for being on the show today. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much Thank for having you. us. This Thank was wonderful. So. Thank you so much. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.